morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks especially to all our Cato sponsors, the ones wearing those red name tags. If you don't have a red name tag this time, there's an easy way to get one. Um, you can even do it online. So, but we're really appreciative of all the people who make our, our work possible. And uh, our work never ends. You know, we've had, a, I think, a great year, year and a half at Cato. I think we've had some real impact. You know, Jim Harper is here, and Jim Harper, again, has the annual uh, assault that he makes on the Real ID Act. You know, if it weren't for Jim's efforts, we'd probably all be walking around with what's a de facto, you know, national ID card. So thanks for that, Jim. And Gene Healy, who will be speaking, you know, some of Gene's uh, team was really instrumental in, uh, in the reforms of the NSA surveillance program. Um, so I think another example where, uh, where our work really is having, having impact. Um, Jeb Henserling, um, Congressman Henserling, the chair of the Financial Services Committee, he uh, introduced what's really the first legitimate reform uh, effort um, to take on Dodd-Frank. It's called the Financial Choice Act. The, uh, the heart of the act is the idea of letting banks opt out of Dodd-Frank regulation if they agree to hold 10% of capital. And uh, I think Chairman Hanseling's been quite open that that's an idea he got from Cato. Um, Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation, and my predecessor, uh, John Allison. We've also been working, uh, Michael Cannon, who I think you all know is Obamacare's most relentless antagonist, has been working to get uh, a bill introduced that uh, proposes uh, the implementation of large health savings accounts, which would be a more of a free market reform that could be set up side by side with Obamacare so that we don't have to wait for, uh, for an outright repeal for that to happen. We also, you know, I read, it was, uh, someone forwarded me an article, news in the Harvard Crimson, that the fourth most popular undergraduate course at Harvard this semester is taught by Cato's own Jeff Myron, our Director of Economic Studies, and it's an introduction to libertarian public policy. But you don't have to pay to go to Harvard to take this course because we got a grant, generous seven-figure grant from some longtime donors last year that uh, it's basically allowed us to expand our programs that are focused on young people. And one of the components of that is a series of 15 online courses. Three are already out, including uh, David Bose's Introduction to Libertarianism, an Introduction to Political Philosophy, and also uh, Jeff Myron's uh, Introduction to Libertarian Public Policy. And this is available on our website. Four more will be out this year. We've got a suite planned of at least 15. Um, the traffic to our libertarianism.org website where you can direct. These things are really applicable for anyone, worthwhile and, uh, and valuable to anyone, but they are directed to young people, not branded that way because young people don't like things that are branded for them. Um, but the traffic to that site is more than double this year, and we're, getting, we're on a track to, to get to about 200,000 monthly visits. So that's really having, having some impact. But um, as I say, our work never ends because uh, we're in the midst of this election. And I've got people who uh, I know and donors who line up on both sides, the Never Hillary camp and the Never Trump camp. And as we get closer, and I understand, I understand both sides. I understand where people are coming from. There are people who say, you know, Hillary is just a hardcore statist, so we don't want her. And there's other people who say Trump is crazy, he's dangerous, we don't want him. And I'm sympathetic to both. But what I find is that as we get closer to the election, you know, and the juices get flowing and people get into this kind of red team, blue team dynamic, 
people really start to think that the person they're rooting for is something special. And one thing we know, this election, neither is special. And um, you know, the things that we care about, free trade, fixing our immigration system, reducing spending, reforming entitlements, trying to roll back the regulatory state so that our children and grandchildren have the same great opportunities that we have. This is, this is the core of uh, what drives our mission um, at Cato. And regardless of who wins this election, um, you know, we're not gonna be at the dawn of uh, a great libertarian, libertarian era. So that's why I think our, our work is, uh, is more important than ever. Um, we uh, are uh, cited in the media, as you know, quite, uh, quite frequently, you know, on TV, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, in the uh, print media, regional papers all over the country, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times. This week, our work was cited by uh, Stephen Colbert, um, by Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, uh, by the Center for American Progress. Um, they were citing some of our immigration work. I wish they were citing some of our entitlement work. Uh, but also yesterday, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar cited, uh, cited some of Cato's, Cato's research. So I think uh, really the message I'm trying to deliver is that um, um, we're working really hard. I think we're getting some things done, but we all recognize the enormity of the, uh, the task in front of us. So. Uh, we're really going to be looking for ways to increase our impact. Cato's gonna be turning 40 next year, and rather than having one of these kind of black tie celebrations, what we're gonna do is have a two-day convocation in, uh, in Washington, and we're gonna use the time between now and then. When I joined Cato last year, a lot of people said, hey, what do you wanna do? What do you wanna change? And I was, uh, I demurred. I think Cato's a fantastic organization. Um, I admitted that I think every fantastic organization can get better, but I think when you join an organization from the outside, especially someone who wasn't involved in the policy world, you have to have a little bit of humility and recognize that you have some things to learn before you uh, generate ideas of what we can do differently. But I have a number of ideas that I've developed in concert with my colleagues and some of our donors, people in acad academia and the media, and uh, we're gonna be trying to flesh some of those out over the course of this year and really decide that um, you know, after this um, dispiriting election is done and uh, we mark Cato's 40th anniversary, we're gonna have a battle plan for uh, how we really continue to try to create the free and prosperous society that uh, we want for ourselves, but more importantly, we want for our, for our children and grandchildren. So thank you all of you to, for, uh, for making that possible. I wanted to uh, give a special mention to, we have uh, the family of Stephen Ball here. Um, Jim and Susan Sire, and uh, his longtime friend Barbara Barbara Bucky, and uh, when I m mentioned all these media citations we get, um, I think the best that we know, Stephen learned about Cato on a, a radio program, uh, a host who spoke very favorably about our work and the impact we were having, and uh, it doesn't appear that Stephen was ever a donor to Cato, uh, but when he unfortunately passed away two years ago, he left us a. Uh, a seven-figure gift in his uh, in his estate, and uh, we really thank uh, we, uh, we we regret that we didn't have the opportunity to to uh, thank him for that. But we're really glad that Susan and Jim and Barbara are with us today, so that we can acknowledge uh, that really generous and and uh, really uh, extraordinary uh, contribution that uh, that Stephen made. Um, so with that, let's move on to the program. Uh, my colleague, Terence Keeley, I've got, I really enjoyed getting to know him. Uh, Terence um, speaks with a British accent, so we all uh, 
feel that he, we, we, we all think he's really, really smart because of that, but he's smart anyway. Um, he's a biochemist. And I never, I always forget, because I always get Oxford and Cambridge confused. I always forget, did you go to Oxford and teach at Cambridge, or go to Cambridge and teach at Oxford? Okay. Uh, I'm going to remember that from now on, but he's also the president of the University of Buckingham. And uh, Terence uh, joined as a visiting scholar. He's spending uh, a number of months with us in Washington while his family is in the UK. And he's part of our Center for the Study of, study of Science. Um, you we're very concerned about the uh, politicization of science and the impact uh, that government involvement has in, on, on science. Uh, we do a lot of work in the climate change arena because I think that's right now probably the best example of how uh, incentives that get in put in place by politics and government can, uh, can distort scientific inquiry. And Terence has done a lot of work on the history of, of this and I think as a result has some very interesting insights into uh, the impact that uh, the government funding can have on, on science and research and, and development. So without uh, further delay, please join me in welcoming Terence Keeley. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, I've spent my whole life in British universities, which are centers of socialism. And to have spent the last five months at Cato, where I can walk down the corridor and talk about freedom and liberty, and people don't laugh at me, is, it's, it's a liberation. And um, thanks to Peter's leadership, Cato is a real joy to live in. I'm, I've had a wonderful time. Thank you. And I thank Pat Michaels of the Center for the Study of Science, who invited me, and whose own books, of course, uh, about the abuse of science by government are so good. Um, I'm going to talk for 30 minutes and leave 10 minutes for questions because questions are often the best bit. And the title of the talk is why six American presidents oppose the government funding of science, but actually most American presidents oppose the government funding of science. And the reason for that, I think, is interesting and important because the founding document for the American federal government funding of science is George Washington's farewell address. And in his farewell address, he says, no foreign entanglements. And that remains federal policy all the way to 1947 with Harry Truman's Truman Doctrine, which then overturns that policy. And it turns out that the federal government funds science for military reasons, as, as will become very clear. And so between the George Washington era and 1947, there is no federal government for funding for science of any significance whatsoever. It is really trivial. But from 47 onwards, under the Truman Doctrine, American funding for science explodes. So I'm going to talk about now why almost every president before 1947 opposed the federal government funding of science and how many since have actually been very skeptical and what impact it's made. So um, we start with this story of no federal government funding for science. And the federal government in this country only starts to fund science for the first time because of an Englishman, Smithson, who leaves his money, just over half a million dollars in 1835, to create the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. And this is immediately highly controversial because defenders of states' rights, defenders of the strict interpretation of the Constitution, 
argue that for the federal government to administer funds for science, even if the funds are given by outsiders, flouts the Constitution. And not surprisingly, uh, the argument is, is led from South Carolina and, and places like that. And so you get to Senator John Calhoun, for example, who argues that the money should be returned to James Smithson's heirs. His fellow senator, William Preston, said in the Senate, every whippersnapper vagabond might think it proper to have his name distinguished in the same way if we accept this deplorable gift. So there is huge opposition right from the beginning, the moment there's any government funding of science, which brings me to my first president, Andrew Johnson. He was a representative from Tennessee at the time, so he wasn't at the time uh, a, a president. He became president, of course. And he became the Smithsonian's most articulate enemy. He was really infuriated that once the Smithsonian was founded, it started to ask for federal government support, which he described as picking the pockets of the people. And he remained the Smithsonian's most bitter enemy until his death. And indeed, had he not, of course, been distracted by more important matters such as reconstruction, it would be interesting to see what would happen to the Smithsonian under his presidency. But as I said, he got distracted. The next president to explicitly oppose the government funding of science was James Buchanan. While he was president, there was a representative from Vermont called James Morrill who wanted to create land-grant colleges. His argument was that farmers are poor, so the federal government should help farmers by creating these colleges. And Morrill, of course, was a supporter of Henry Clay's American system, and Henry Clay believed, as everyone here knows, in uh, protective tariffs and in government subsidies to industries and to infrastructure. James Buchanan did not. And when the bill was presented to him in 1859, he vetoed it, and he gave two reasons for vetoing it. First, he said, it's illogical. Farmers are poor because we produce too much food. That's why they're poor. How could it possibly be rational to subsidize the further improvement of agriculture, which would simply overproduce even more food and make farmers even poorer? And the other reason he opposed it was crowding out. He said, look, every state has an agricultural college of one sort or other, either funded by the state government or by private philanthropists. If the federal government moves in, all we'll do is crowd out the institutions that are already there. It's irrational. So he vetoes it. And it only comes in during the Civil War when Lincoln is president. And of course, Lincoln's a great believer in Henry Clay's American system. But in fact, Lincoln inserts a condition that the prime function of these colleges is to be centers of military drill. He's much more interested in training young men to be soldiers for the war than in agriculture. And so the prime function of the land-grant colleges when they're first created is to have a little West Point in every state in the Union. Once peace breaks out after the Civil War, American funding for science stops, as it always does in peacetime in America until Truman. And indeed, we get no funding for science in America of any significance from the federal government until the next great enemy of science becomes President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He comes to power in the middle of the recession, which he blames on science. He says the reason we have all these hands unemployed is that science has made them redundant. 
That sounds silly now, perhaps not so silly, but even Einstein believed that. Even Einstein believed that uh, unemployment was caused by science. And Roosevelt said, science is a conspiracy of evil capitalists to destroy the working man. There are science budgets in D.C. at that time. They're small, but they exist. And he halves them. And in the middle of the Depression, Roosevelt throws hundreds of scientists into unemployment to stop any more science being subsidized by the federal government. It doesn't make any difference to science. There's a huge increase of private funding for science, which, which, which more, much more than compensates for that. And of course then Wallace, Henry Wallace's vice president, who is a Marxist, extraordinary, isn't it? Um, uh, under the uh, WPA and under the New Deal, then starts employing scientists again uh, and grants in every publicly funded uh, university in the Union, the way uh, you know, under the YPA, WPA artists were, were, were funded. There was no idea that this was going to be of any benefit to, to, to the economy. This was simply to stop scientists like artists being unemployed. So uh, Roosevelt is our next complete, really virulent opponent of the government funding for science, which he just sees as corporate welfare. We then get, of course, the Second World War and everything changes, the Manhattan Project, and by 1945, the American government is funding 6,000 scientists. And the question becomes, should they be demobilized, as has happened under every previous war? Should they be demobilized? And they would have been demobilized, but for the Truman Doctrine, when Truman says, the era of foreign entanglements has now come. We're going to be permanently allied in NATO. We're going to have permanent allies in the UN. We have to reject what Washington said because we face a new world with the Soviet Union and China and all the rest of it. And therefore, the Cold War will need scientists. We will need to develop nuclear weapons and all the rest that we need. And so he lets it be known to Congress that he would sign into law a bill for the National Science Foundation, except that he vetoes it, because when he gets the bill, he discovers that it's a bill that funds science the way scientists want to be funded. The bill says the American government will give all this money to the National Science Foundation, and the scientists will then determine how to spend it, according to their own judgment. And Truman says, that's not what I want. This is American funding for science for the government, and it's for the government to determine how this money is spent. And for a start, I, the president, will appoint the chief executive of the NSF. Under the 1947 bill, the NSF appointed its own chief executive so that scientists wouldn't be distracted by political intervention. So finally, the NSF is only signed into law in 1950 with the Korean War and the whole of the hotting up of the Cold War. And it's very, very much, Truman doesn't disguise this, this is about training scientists for the military. This is not about funding science because pure science is of importance to the economy. This is about the government funding scientific training in universities so that the military can have the research it needs for the war that comes. Which brings us to our next president to oppose the government of science, Eisenhower. Because Eisenhower says, this is a disaster. And in his military-industrial complex speech, his own farewell address, he points out that it's not just a military-industrial complex, we also have, and I quote his words, um, let me just find those words so I can quote them. Uh, we have a scientific technological elite. 
and he complains that public policy has become the captive of a scientific technological elite and that universities have ceased to be centers of opposition to power. Universities no longer speak truth under power, Eisenhower says, and don't forget he was once president of Columbia University, so he knew what he was talking about. Universities have become places where the only thing that matters is how much government federal funding do you get for your projects and how much can we do what the government wants us to do. So Eisenhower regrets that the federal government funding of science is destroying the universities as centers of independent scholarship. And our last president explicitly to criticize science is Lyndon Johnson. And uh, the, the, the speech with which he launches Medicare in 1966, he says, look, we overturned a nearly 150-year tradition of the federal government not funding science since the war. What benefits have there been? And he concludes there have been none. He's very explicit about this. He says, if you look at rates of American economic growth, rates of American technological growth, or rates of improvement in American health, going right back to 1830 when the statistics first started to be collected, you see there is an absolute inexorable improvement year in, year out. And in 1947, when suddenly there's a huge explosion of American federal government for science, health, and all the NSF, NIH, and all those federal programs, there's not a single deflection on those long-term rates of growth. He says it is a myth that the federal government of science has done anything for health, anything for the economy, and anything for technology. And he is going to demand of these federal institutions some sort of accountability, or he's going to stop funding science in future. And indeed, it would have been a pretty severe blow for those federal programs, except, of course, the Vietnam War accelerates and Lyndon Johnson has more important things to worry about. But modern economics and econometrics, funded by governments, by the American government in particular, have only confirmed what Lyndon Johnson said. So in 2007, for example, a man by the name of Leo Svikaskas, an economist employed by the Euro US Bureau of Labor Statistics in Washington, D.C., publishes a paper and he says, look, here is all the evidence that we have from the literature. There is no question economic growth is based on R&D, research and development, but only on private R&D. There is no correlation with publicly funded R&D and economic growth. And it's not just Leo. The OECD, which is an intergovernment think tank, of which, of course, America is a major contributor, in 2003 published a study looking at the growth rates of the 21 leading world economies over a 27-year period between 1971 and 1998. And they conclude it is only the privately funded R&D that stimulates economic growth. There is no benefit from state funding of R&D. And even worse, the OECD says, it appears that the state funding of research and development only crowds out private funding, and it's the private funding that gives you economic growth. It may be that the public funding of research actually damages economic growth. Now, why should this be? Well, because the idea that there's an economic benefit from the public funding of science is a myth very carefully promulgated just down the road, actually, at the Rand Corporation after the war. 
The RAND Corporation, which simply stands for R&D, was created in 1945 specifically to lobby for the government funding of science. It was created by the defense industries um, and by um, uh, colleagues of um, uh, Vannevar Bush, who created the National Science Foundation, and others who believed in the government funding of science. And they commissioned economists to show, in inverted commas, that science was a public good. But it's very easy indeed to show and as far back as 1776, Adam Smith showed that that is simply not true. The idea that science is a public good means that if I publish a piece of science at huge private expense, you can all copy my science much more cheaply than I can produce it. And so you, as my competitors, will undercut me, grab the products, grab the market, and drive me into bankruptcy. No rational industrialist would fund research because his or her competitors can copy more cheaply than it took him to do it. That's the myth. It is, of course, a myth. The idea that science is so easily available is, of course, a myth. Let me, let me give you an example. Let's not look at current science. That's obviously very, very complicated. But let's look at science that's 100 years old now. Now, science, 100, I mean, 100 years ago is the dark ages as far as science is concerned. Clearly, any child could pick up a paper written 100 years ago and understand it, say, um, Einstein's theories of relativity. They're over 100 years now. Anyone could pick up those papers and understand them because it's so easy. Of course not. Science is really complicated. And the only people who can read scientific papers, read patents, or pull apart a piece of technology and then recreate it in their own labs are fellow scientists and fellow technologists. And the price you pay for being a fellow scientist or a fellow technologist is the science that you yourself produce. It is actually a straight deal. It costs as much to be a scientist as to take out. It was never a public good. And what is annoying about this whole argument is that Adam Smith said so in 1776. Why does this matter? This really matters to libertarians because we have sold the past. We have made a major intellectual error. You see, most of us as libertarians spend most of our time fighting over the distribution of goods and services. Should the government do this or should we leave it to the private sector? Should the government produce these regulations or can we leave it to spontaneous organizations? But these economic activities are all secondary to the most important economic activity of all, which is economic growth. That is the most important thing. Everything else just follows. And we as libertarians have long given away to the statists economic growth. We've admitted, okay, that's the one exception. The government has to fund science. Therefore, we are admitting as libertarians that the most important economic function of all can only be gifted to us by the government. But think of the history. Think of the United States of America. No government funding of science until 1940, and yet you became the richest country in the world in 1890, the most technological advanced country in the world by 1890. You had Tesla. You had the Wright brothers. You had Edison. You had scientists of you know, Albert Einstein, Princeton. You were rich and technologically adept in the complete absence of the government funding of science. The country you overtook in 1890 was Britain, another country completely laissez-faire in science. We competed for the leadership of the world for 200 years. The countries that even didn't begin even to approach us were France and Germany. 
which believed in the statist model of the government funding of science. And in 1800, for example, France and Germany had only two-thirds of the GDP per capita of Britain, or indeed, well, Britain. And by 1900, they still only had two-thirds of our wealth and income and technology. Whereas you, in 1800, were as poor as France and Germany, but by 1890, you'd overtaken the Brits. So if you look at the history, the economics, and the sociology of science, it was always a myth that governments should fund it. But it's a myth that has empowered those centers of socialism, the universities, most economists, and most policymakers. And it's a myth, myth that we need to recapture for ourselves as libertarians. Economic growth is damaged by the government funding of science. Economic growth depends on the private funding of science. We libertarians are the people who have given the world the standards of living it now enjoys. Thank you very much. Well, I've left lots of time for questions, but if there aren't any, I can just... <laughs> oh, yes, there's one over there, yeah. In terms of economic incentives, that if it turns out that Viagra improves sexual function, the Pfizer company can make a lot of money. It has a big incentive to do that. My cardiologist tells me there's a large-scale, long-term, big sample size study that says that if you have a diet of olive oil and uh, tomato sauce and nuts, you'll have reduced heart attack rates. Uh, that's government-funded. What's the economic incentive to privately fund that kind of research? Okay, well, let me first of all address nutrition. You will remember that it's only three or four years ago that suddenly we discovered that oils and fats were good for us. Do you remember the pyramid that we all went to eat? The bottom of the pyramid was all about carbohydrates, and the top of the pyramid, the things we were meant to eat least, were oils and fats. That was the government. It was in 1977 that George McGovern chaired a Senate committee that gave the American people for the first time dietary advice. And what this government committee did, it's a real scandal actually, you can read it, it's on the web, what they said was, we don't know what advice we should give the American people. But we are really important people because we're senators and therefore we have to give the American people advice and even though we don't know what advice to give, we're going to tell you to eat carbohydrates and don't eat fat. It's not a coincidence that the pyramid was created, the original pyramids, as tombs. Because there can be no doubt that the American government advice of the last 40 years has caused the death of hundreds of thousands of people. Carbohydrates kill. Carbohydrates make you fat. Carbohydrates give you type 2 diabetes. And it was, in fact, the private sector in the form of a certain New York cardiologist who pointed out that um, Atkins that the government advice was completely misleading. So I'm afraid the government was a cause of huge... But to answer your wider point, foundations. If you look at the history of funding of science in this country and also in Britain, before the governments moved in, you had industry funding science, but you also had major, major foundations. And this is regrowing now in America. So in America, for example, you have... Um, uh, the, the Warren Buffett uh, Gates Foundation, which is enormously rich. And new foundations are coming forward all the time now as there is a perception that there's a need for the private funding of science. So to come back to your point, 
I would say to you that the empirical evidence is very clear. Economically, you don't need uh, government funding of science. For non-economic reasons, let me go with you half the way. There, of course, you have an issue. So, for example, smoking. It is true that you could not rely on the tobacco industry to tell you that smoking was bad for you. They wouldn't have rushed to tell you that. It is true it was the government who funded the research that showed that. It was Hitler's government who showed that because he was a obsessional anti-smoking. So the Nazis were the first people to publish the data showing that smoking was bad for you. And then that was ignored because we didn't want to read Nazi science. And then the British government support. So, but the problem with that argument is, are you simply crowding out the private foundations? And there's very good evidence that once American government and British government actually about the same time started funding science, rich people stopped creating foundations. That's being reversed now. Foundations would probably, but if you look at America today, just America today, only half of all basic science is funded by the federal government, a quarter by the foundations and a quarter by private industry. As for research and development, the American government's probably only funding 15% of that now. American science is much more privatized than people realized. Anyway, that's my answer. <laughs> Please. Are you familiar with how the open source software market works? Oh. And if so, would you say the basic logic of that is close to the logic of your explanation of how basic research is done and that both of them can be described as gift economies? Uh, there's a very simple answer to that question because there are lots of hands up, so I don't want to, but the simple answer is yes, you're absolutely right, David. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. It may be a myth, but it is a, also a general belief that if you look to the uh, origin of the web, the internet, that DARPA figured prominently in, in the concept and uh, in the early days. How would you reconcile that? That is a really good question, and I'm, thank you for asking. Let me just look at it in, in, in broad. If you look at the American government today, it funds defense research to the tune of $66 billion a year. The National Science Foundation receives only a tenth of that, just under $7 billion a year. So if you're going to pour 10 times as much money into military research, as you do into the National Science Foundation, one would hope you'd get something back. In this case, uh, of course, um, the web, which I'm coming to in a minute. Now, in fact, there have been many races in the past. I mean, the Wright brothers were actually in a race with the Smithsonian to develop the airplane. And if the Smithsonian had won that race, you, you know, you'd be saying that to me now. The best answer to your question came from a book written by a fellow libertarian, British libertarian, uh, called Matt Ridley, who wrote a very good book recently called The Evolution of Everything. And he really explains in that book how technology is actually a race. So, for example, if you look at Edison's light bulb, everyone in America believes that Edison invented the light bulb. We in Britain know that it was a British technologist who invented the light bulb. <laughs> the Hungarians have their own, the Czechs have their own, um, even the Australians, I think. Um, that year, there were 27 patents for the light bulb across the globe. In Washington, there was a patent filed for the light bulb the afternoon that Edison filed it. That, that very afternoon, Edison beat him only by a few hours. The point is, technology is a race, and furthermore, it seems to be driven entirely by its own dynamic. The really interesting thing is Moore's law. I am answering your question. Everyone knows Moore's law, after all, we're in California, that every 18 months, the time of communication, uh, you know, of information doubles. And people think, wrongly, 
that this is something to do with Silicon Valley. Moore's law goes all the way back to 1860. You can go all the way back from the speed of communication before the railway, when people were still going around with horses, and then you get the railway, and then you get the telegraph, etc., etc. The speed of information has halved, or doubled, depending on how you put it, every year since 1860. Moore's law in, in the Silicon Valley is only the last expression of that. The point is, technology seems to have its own speed, its own dynamic. People make simultaneous inventions, and it's a race. So yes, every now and then, if you spend 10 times as much as you do on civil R&D, you're going to produce something. But distributed computing was what it used to be called in those days, was a technology whose time had come. And I would say to you that if that 66 billion had been given back to the American people and to the American corporations instead of being taxed, they were coming up with that technology anyway, and it was absolutely inevitable the way all technology is. That's my answer to you. You may dismiss it, but that is my answer to you. <laughs> Please, this gentleman over there. English publication has given Oxford the prize of being the world's greatest university. Our and I understand part of the metric of that uh, is, has to do with funding of research. Are congratulations in order or, or not? No, they're not. Um, let me tell you a story. I, I am not name dropping. Please do not misunderstand. I am not name dropping, except I'm about to name drop. <laughs> in the mid 80s, I was asked if I would discuss the economics of Nobel Prizes with Margaret Thatcher. And of course, I was absolutely thrilled because I worshipped Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and I went down to see Margaret. I, Margaret. <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher. And uh, we'd met a few times before, so she knew who I was. Um, and she was perfectly polite. She wasn't particularly friendly or unfriendly. She was busy as ever. But anyway, she knew who I was. And we had this half hour together. And I was introduced to Prime Minister. This is Dr. Healy. Yes, I know who he is. He's coming to talk to you about the economics of uh, Nobel Prizes. Yes, I know that, she said. She was terribly impatient. Um, and, and blah, blah, blah. And she interrupted the interlocutor. It was just the three of us in this room. And she said, look, she said, the story is very simple. We need more Nobel Prizes. So I said, well, Prime Minister, it's not quite so... No, no, she said, we need... No, I said, it's not so straightforward. No, she said for the third time, really quite cross. She said, we need more Nobel Prizes. And I realized I wasn't going to get a word in edgeways if I tried to have a civilized, gentle debate with Margaret Thatcher because she wasn't that sort of person. So to cut to the chase, I simply said, you mean like the Soviet Union? <laughs> and even she could see the point I was making. In the mid-'80s, the Soviet Union was winning dozens of Nobel Prizes. Japan, who had a GDP of capita, something, I think, almost 20 times the Soviet Union's, had won practically no Nobel Prizes. And, and she knew that. And she suddenly understood what I was trying to say. And I've never forgotten her response. She looked at me with great disfavor and she said, don't be so silly, young man. <laughs> but I think that was her way of conceding she'd lost that argument. No, I, I'm of course pleased that Oxford has, has done well in this metric. Um, and previously, it went Harvard and Cambridge and then MIT and Caltech. And of course, at that point, it's just noise. But the real reason is, the real question is, do you want universities to be centers of government-funded science, which is what they are? And I say to you no, and I tell you from my own personal experience. When I was a young scientist, Oxford offered Mrs. Thatcher an honorary degree. She accepted it 
really full of pride, because she was a modest and decent person, Mrs. Thatcher, and to be offered an honorary degree by Oxford, she came from a humble background, was for her a great honor. And then Oxford insulted her by withdrawing the offer. Oh, you don't know the story? Oh, well. <laughs> Let me tell you the story. Um, there's a brilliant biography of Margaret Thatcher written by an English journalist called Charles Moore. It's the second best political biography I've ever read. The best political biography, as you all know, is Robert Carey's biography of Lyndon Johnson, which is the finest book one will ever read. It's a brilliant, brilliant four-volume biography that is yet to come. But the second best is Charles Moore's biography of Mrs. Thatcher. And he describes how, when Oxford offered her the honor degree in 1985 and then withdrew it after she accepted all this in public and insulted her, of course, how it was the most hurtful thing that ever happened to her until the Tories threw her out of office in 1990. She was mortified. And the reason Oxford did it was because they were full, and I hate to use this word about Oxford, but they all know what I think because I was at Oxford at the time. They lied. Oxford lied about the state of British science because they wanted to negotiate more government funding. And that's how I got into this game, because I was at Oxford at the time, and I also loved Mrs. Thatcher, and I loved Oxford, and I loved Mrs. Thatcher, but I knew someone was lying, and it turned out it was Oxford. Mrs. Thatcher had looked, protected British science perfectly. Oxford had given up the search for truth because it wanted to search for money. And as a senior, Oxford sorry, as a senior Cambridge scientist told a friend of mine, when this friend was defending me against this Cambridge scientist because I was the evil man who said governments don't have to fund science. And this Cambridge scientist said to this friend of mine, who said, you know, but Terence's data's right. And this senior professor said, scientists should always pursue truth except when it comes to their funding. <laughs> so the government funding of science has destroyed the culture of Oxford and Cambridge as institutions that prioritise truth over scholarship. So no, it's not a source of, of uh, and I'd give much greater credence to a really good liberal arts college where professors were happy. And of course your culture is better in America. I mean, whatever we think of Chomsky, and we all probably think he's a dreadful man, but nonetheless, MIT, which gets all this money from the Defense Department, has never once given Chomsky an unpleasant time, even though he's such an enemy of the federal government. I think your universities actually, because you have these huge endowments, are more healthy than ours. But our universities have no endowments. All our research money comes from the government, and government money, I think, pollutes British universities. David, I will come back to you if there's no other question. Oh, let me just take these other questions. There's one there and there's one there. Yeah. Oh, right. You present like a pretty noble ideal behind privatized science and everything. Um, but no doubt, like, if you were in a position of power and we were to just eliminate this, it would be pretty destabilizing to the current, you know, setup that we have here. So I was curious if you can, you know, shed some light on, like, a practical, pragmatic way to actually get there. Uh, it's a very good question, actually, because if you look at the way the American government spends money, how, many, how, how long do I have, Peter? Should I just, 30 seconds or two minutes? Okay, I'll make it really quick. Um, the answer is not to do anything abruptly. I mean, to answer your question, to be really quick, I would simply fix all budgets and let inflation slowly whittle them away. That's what I would do. But if you look at the way the American government spends its money, out of a total budget of, um, for research of 124 billion, I think, it gives the NSF only 7 billion. It's not a serious sum of money. It gives the NSF money to keep the intellectuals off its back. 
but the rest of the money goes to defense, um, NASA, and other non-economic activities. The NSF money is simply to stop bad publicity in the Washington Post. I would fix it at that sum and let inflation slowly whittle it away. 